Open up to the book of Psalms, Psalm 95. You can keep your finger there and then open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. So go somewhere in the middle of your Bible and you'll land probably close to Psalms or thereabouts. So 95. And then open up to the very last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. Psalm 7, or Revelation 7 is what you want to look at. Um, what we're going to do is we are going to read the passage, get to work in just a moment. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, what we're doing. We've been in a series called Renovation of the Heart. The big idea behind this is that we're looking at what does it look like for us to be remade by Jesus through a variety of habits, what we're calling habits of grace and or practices. So what we've been saying is that these practices are practices that Jesus did, his disciples did, Christian history, Christians throughout the past 2,000 years of history have done, and many modern evangelicals have completely forgotten. So we've reduced a lot of ways our Christian walk down to nothing more than uh, quiet time. And, and a lot of that is we miss the robust nature of really what it looks like to actually have certain practices to follow the life of Jesus. And again, the big idea behind all this is not to just simply busy our st- ourselves with stuff, but at the end of the day is we want to be remade by Jesus to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to do the stuff that Jesus did. That's our big aim. And so what we're saying is that Christianity is not just simply an affirmation of concepts or truths or ideas or theological concepts, that Christianity is, uh, by and large, large, it's a lifestyle. It's following Jesus, and our life begins to be shaped by the one whom we love. And that's, this this whole series is all about learning how to follow the way of Jesus by way of these practices that we're invited into. So that being said, we're going to read a couple passages today. We're going to look at the practice of Worship. Last week we looked at the practice of community. This week the practice of worship and how important and significant this practice is. Um, in other words, if you guys are here, you're already engaging to some degree, more or less, the practice of community. I mean, it is possible to come part of a group but not actually part of the community. And there's reasons why if you missed that last week, I'd highly recommend just go to our website, check it out. But what we want to invite you into is to consider the practice of worship and why that's so important. And hopefully that will all make sense as we begin to look at this. In fact, I'm going to have you guys stand up one more time. Is that cool? All right, exercise. This is all about practices. Stand up. One more time we're going to read the scripture as a way of showing honor to God. So Psalm 95 says this. I'll pick it up by reading in verse 1. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all other gods. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Skip on down to Revelation chapter 7. says this. And after this I looked up and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from every tribe, and all peoples, languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels that were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving 
and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. God, this morning we ask you that you would just open our hearts to receive, to learn, to new, uh, to receive from you, to learn anew what it means to follow you, to receive from you grace, God, that you give us to be the type of people you invite us into becoming. We pray, God, this morning for a revelation, a new revelation of who you are. God, let your word come to life. Let it spark a whole new sense of love. It's going to say joy, but spark joy. Lord, let your word spark joy. Amen. God, I pray that your holiness would just become something that just radically reshapes our understanding of your greatness. Let it transform us, we pray. Uh, let my words, God, be the words that reflect your heart. Anything else, God, that I say that is not reflective of you, let it just fall by the wayside and be forgotten. So, happy way here this morning. We pray and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Would you guys all grab a seat? So, I want to begin by a quote from a guy by the name of David Mathis. Uh, it's from one of the books I've been reading called Habits of Grace. We'll come back to this in just a second. Uh, this guy named David Mathis has written this great book. I highly recommend you can check it out. It's called Habits of Grace. Here we go. It says this. We were made to worship Jesus together within the congregation of the redeemed. God didn't fashion us to enjoy him finally as solitary individuals, but as members of a countlessly large family. When we catch a glimpse of heaven, we don't find ourselves sequestered at a study desk or hidden alone in a prayer closet in a prayer closet. Uh, but joyfully part of a worshiping multitude of Christ's people from every tongue and tribe and nation, just like we had read in the book of Revelation. Uh, It says, finally, we were made for corporate worship. We are made to be a part of a family, of a community, and this is what it looks like. This is why, again, we've been trying to tackle this larger concept over the past several weeks, that this idea of just having a personal or privatized relationship with God is actually foreign to the Bible. God invites us into a family, uh, crazy thing, and in some ways the good things, and maybe in some ways the really horrible things about a family. You don't get to choose who are your siblings, so you have to learn to love them and work through that. It's part of the process of becoming like Jesus. Um, but this is part of that process, is gathering together as a community and worshiping together. So this is a habit that we're describing uh, of a practice that we engage and we participate in. Um, next slide, I want to give you just a little bit of a quote, and then we'll begin to make some headway into this. Um, so this is a little summary of what we'll be looking at. Um, I didn't completely create this. In some ways, it's kind of created from one of the quotes I'm going to be reading in just a moment from, from a guy by the name of James K.A. Smith. But he says this, that the practice of worship recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our love. So it's kind of big, wordy stuff, but just unpack it and think about it. It's not that hard. So it recalibrates our heart, which the implication is that our hearts... Uh, fall out of caliber. We lose sight of important things. And so what worship does is it takes our hearts that are oftentimes drifting away from God, drifting towards other things, and it refocuses, recenters us back upon Jesus. It then reforms our desires, which means we, by and large, as, as human beings, we are desiring people. We're not just thinking people. It's important for you to know. We are not just thinking people. We are feeling people. We are people who need something to love, and we need to be loved by something. So that's how we're wired. You can fight it. You can resist it. You can deny it. It still is who you are. And so what worship does is practice of worship. It reforms our desires. 
takes the ones that are bad, that are misguiding us, misleading us, misdirecting us, and brings us back into the right desires that Jesus uh, does and gives us. And then finally, it rehabituates our loves. So again, habit is part of this word. Um, it rehabituates. It puts us into a proper habits of demonstrating love, which I said this last week, because we're not here, highly recommend check out the, uh, the message online, calvarysoul.com. We said primarily love in the context of how Jesus and the Bible identifies this idea of love is it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. So if we look at love for God and say, my love for God is about a warm, fuzzy feeling, there's multiple problems with that, aside from the fact that your emotional feelings for God will come and go. But what love is for God is actually an action. Jesus will say something like this. He says, if you love me, you will do what I say. Uh, another word for that is obey. You will obey me. So what happens if you have someone that says, but I love God, and I have these warm, fuzzy feelings for God, but I do not do what Jesus asked of me. I'm living in uh, defiance to whatever it is they have to say. Then I would uh, gently push back and just say, then you may need to really reconsider, because the love that you might have might be a love that's framed in modern terminology, but not framed in a biblical understanding as to what love is. Love is about obeying this God who has invited you to receive from him. So it's, it's an obedience. It's, it rehabituates. So that's what worship does. Again, it recalibrates our hearts. It reforms our desires, and it rehabituates our loves. So why does this matter? So let's ask the next, que- next question. I think ultimately it matters for this reason. It's because you and I, we are made for God. It's a simple answer, but it kind of plays into a little bit what Martin Luther said on his commentary on the Ten Commandments. He said something along these lines. Um, which is, if you're familiar with it, it's the do not worship any other Lord, do, do not worship any other God before me, says the Lord. So the I, big idea that Luther would go on to say is this, that where the heart is rightly set towards God, and, his com- and this commandment is observed, all other commandments follow suit. So if you think of it this way, why would somebody need to be told, don't kill your next door neighbor? Well, because somewhere in our heart, uh, we have, they have something that we want. Or they are doing something or prohibiting something that we are trying to have access to. So we do what, we just take them out. Now again, most of us are not murderers in the sense that we're going to go take somebody out. But we may murder someone in our heart by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm going to remove them as a friend on Facebook. I'm going to do these passive aggressive type actions and activities. And these are all a variety of forms of saying, I will remove the memory of you from my heart. But, but why does this happen? I mean, there's a variety of reasons for this. But what Luther basically goes on to say that the real issue that we have as human beings, it always traces back to a worship issue. That's the big issue. I'll give you an example of this. I was talking to a guy many years ago, and he had a porn problem, as he identified it. He says, I have a problem with downloading porn. I don't know how to stop downloading porn. And what we began to talk about and discover was the real issue was not that he had a porn problem. He had a worship problem. And he had this encounter with God. That he ended up coming back and discovering something about Jesus. And what he came back and described and explained, he says, I had this moment where I realized that Jesus, he had this picture, or saw a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. You know, and oftentimes Jesus has like a loincloth. I mean, traditionally Jesus would have been stripped naked on the cross. And he had this image, he realized like Jesus was, was naked on a cross. And here I am, constantly like fawning over naked images of a human body. And he had this like comparative scenario happening in his mind where he realized... I am more in love with a created human body than I am in the creator, with, than I am with the creator. I, I love the human body, other human bodies, 
then I love the one who created those human bodies. He had this revelation that was the issue was worship. It wasn't a poor problem, first and foremost. It was a worship problem. He was worshiping the wrong things. He was attributing ultimate, infinite value and worth to something other than the creator God. And if you trace back many of the issues that we have in our lives, most of them can be traced back to worship issues. So, for example, you might say, I got an anger problem. Do you really have an anger problem or do you have a self-egocentrical problem? Meaning, you see yourself as the king over everything. And when people cross your path, you get really angry because your sovereignty has been violated. It's a worship problem. You see yourself as sovereign. You're higher than God. And because someone has violated your sovereignty, you get angry and you have these outbursts of wrath. It's, an, it's a worship problem. Oh, here's another one. What about fears? What about things that cause incredible anxiety in our lives? And again, there may be a number of reasons for this, but one of the things I think that we have by way of anxieties, incredible, tremendous, some cases, paralyzing fears, is we see the source of those things that cause those fears in our life as actually being greater in significance than the creator God. So if you think of it this way, if you can somehow take your fears and put them into the context of a mountain, right? Like your fears can be somehow transposed into a mountain. The, the actual physical makeup of that mountain in our minds becomes greater than the very God that we are invited to worship. It's a worship problem. We see those things that cause our fears to be greater than the creator God who spoke all things into existence. So when you begin to reorient your mind, begin to rethink about the greatness of God, the power of God, the beauty of God, the all-satisfying nature, uh, what Jonathan Edwards described as the excellencies of God, when you begin to look at this in the proper light, and your heart swells with love and worship and adoration towards this God, everything else gets put into its proper order. Does that make sense? How are we all doing? You guys good? Okay, so here's the point that I want to begin to look at. I want to basically take a look at these passages and try to understand how this all plays into the bigger uh, aspect of worship and then offer some um, ideas that oftentimes prohibit us or keep us on the outside of entering in, but then offer hopefully some practical things. And then we will end just, just doing this, like singing, worshiping, uh, worshiping God. And of course, we know that worship in, is far more than just simply singing songs. However, we do also know that worship does involve singing together as a community, as we just read in the book of Revelation. So with that, we're going to be focusing mainly on the worshipful, uh, worshipful, the musical element of worship of God here this morning, and uh, implying or uh, assuming that worship is an all-life experience as well. So that being said, let's really kind of ask the question, what do these passages that we just read teach us? So let's jump in and take a look at this. Number one, these passages first and foremost teach us that worship is a response to the revelation of God. Now, again, notice it in Psalm 95, where he says, The Lord is the rock of our salvation. The Lord is a great God. He's a great king over all. The Lord is our maker. So this is a psalmist reflecting upon the nature and the character of God. And in his musing over the nature and character of God, he's, he's doing this invitational thing. He's saying, come on, let's, uh, let us do this. Let us sing to God. Let's worship God. Let's get our hands and our knees before this God because of what he's done. So again, first and foremost, worship is God initiating, God revealing something about himself to us, and then us taking that revelation and responding rightly to it. That's, what, that's, what, that's the makeup, that's the nature of what worship is. 
So first and foremost, these, teach, these verses teach us that worship is this response to the revelation of God. Secondly, we see that worship is really this treasuring action. Uh, in other words, it's something that we do. It's this treasuring action that's directed Godward. So, for example, the psalmist says, sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I love this because he invites the people that are uh, presupposing or understanding or being revealed the nature of who God is. Uh, he's saying, let's, let's sing to this God. Let's use our voices as an instrument of praise, which is what a voice is, to sing to this God. Then I love how he says later on in verse 1, he says, uh, it's almost like he assumes some of you all don't know how to sing. And your temptation is to back out and be like, I can't sing. All I do is make a noise. It's almost like he assumes the fact that y'all exist. And that's okay because many of us are in that category. I'll give you an example. So he says, let's make a joyful noise. So if all you feel like that you are doing or bringing to God is nothing more than a noise, the psalmist says, that's okay. Bring that to God. I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference. There was a gal sitting behind me. She was singing with, it's so loud. And her voice is horrible. I mean, straight up. It was, just, it was not, it was really, really not good. It was off key. And it was just like, she was like singing verses that like weren't even being sung. They were part of the song. It was just, it was like, it was all over the map. But at the end of the day, in my mind, I'm thinking like, I, I probably wouldn't buy her album. <laughs> but Jesus loves this. Like this, God hears this and takes incredible delight in her, her joyful noise. All right. Um, Jesus takes great delight in whatever noise, whatever song, whatever voice that we have to bring. Uh, thirdly, he goes on to say, come into his presence with thanksgiving. So we see that even giving of thanks is, is, a, is an action that's directed towards God. So the big E on the eye chart that I don't want us to miss here is that worship is this action. It's something that you and I do. That's what I want you to hear. It's something that you and I do. So if you're looking at your life and you're saying, I don't really get the whole worship thing, the question I would ask you is, is are you entering into it? Are, what, what do you, explain to me your, your habit, your practice of worship. Do you, do you sing? I never sing. Oh, that's weird. Do you ever raise your hands to God? Nope, absolutely not. I don't want to look like a freak. Do you, what, like, what, explain to me the action or the activity that you engage in. And then if, if none of those things kind of pan out, then at some point you got, you got to look at this and say, worship is an action. Are you, are you acting? Are you, again, not acting, not, not being fake, of course, but the idea of are there things that you're doing that the psalmist is at least inviting you into, that Jesus um, encouraged his disciples to be a part of, that his disciples even did. They sang, they participated, they congregated, they gathered together. We even see that image in the latter part of the book of Revelation that we just read, that all of these angels and saints and creatures and uh, images that are just radically beyond our imagination um, gathering around the throne of God and lifting up their voices. Now, again, many of us, we kind of, we, we wrestle with this because some of us look at ourselves and we think, I'm not just, I'm not wired for expressiveness. And, and again, I want to push back really gently on this because some of us, uh, let's put it this way, I'm, I've been doing this for almost 25 years. And one of the things I've discovered, there are people that will say, I'm just not a very expressive person. But in other contexts, they're very expressive. I don't care if it's a band they like or a particular, you know, tech device that they're really super passionate about or football team that they really love. You get them talking on that subject matter and they come to life. Have you ever met that? Have you discovered that? But in the context of like Jesus and Jesus people, it's just like hands in the pants. You're like, oh, it's, all, it's all good. Like God's cool. And all I'm simply saying is this. Um, not to create any shame or guilt. It's, again, this is never the case. 
but it's just to simply invite you to be honest, to be honest. Like th that's part of what it means to really be human and to really be a human that's being shaped by God is dealing with ourselves with, with honesty and just saying, yeah, maybe, maybe, th maybe there is an issue with my heart. Maybe I actually do feel embarrassed about doing that. And it's okay to admit that. It's, in fact, that's, I would say that's the best step for you to acknowledge, to just admit, like, maybe I do have, to some degree, a sense of just embarrassment. It's good to acknowledge that, because the mo moment you begin to speak that out, and begin to recognize it and identify that, now you can begin to kind of deal with it and be like, man, that's, that's not good. Same way uh, my, my brother I was sharing with you about earlier, uh, years ago, came to this revelation that I, I love naked human female bodies more than I love Jesus. That, that was the moment of breakthrough for him. The moment he realized that was the moment where he was set free. He was able to say, I need to change. I need to repent. I need to turn from this. I need to turn to Jesus who offers grace, forgiveness, and a whole new life. So we also see the psalmist by way of treasuring action towards God, by way of worshiping and bowed down, this invitation to kneel before the Lord and make it. All I'm simply saying is this. You have a variety of responses just in this psalm. And it's just this psalm. There's all sorts of other ways by which human beings are invited to use their bodies uh, as instruments to worship this God by way of action. It's treasuring action to God. Lastly, I want to look at these other passages that we see uh, and identify that worship actually transforms us. That's one of the things I, I think is really important. It's one of the reasons why I think that God says, worship no other God except me. God knows something about the human nature. He knows that to devote our time, our heart, our energy, our money, our devotion, our love to other things other than God, we become shaped by that thing. Whatever it is that we love, we become shaped by that thing. So let me give you an example. In the book of Revelation, again, we see this image of this heavenly procession, scenario happening, taking place. You see the saints. Uh, that's, that's you and I, by the way. People that love Jesus. People that are part of this community that, that say Jesus is Lord, that we love Jesus. No matter how you know, long you've been walking with Jesus, no matter how short you've been walking with Jesus, no matter how saintly you are, no matter how ain'tly you are. I mean, the reality is, at the end of the day, if you trust in this Jesus, you are, you are being thrown into this process of being transformed and reshaped. By grace, the Bible says, you are saved. It's not by our actions, it's not by our works, it's by Jesus' grace that we're invited. But at the end of the day, there's going to be this great multitude and all these other heavenly beings. But the point is that we see that the saints around the throne, they're clothed in these white robes, which is this image of total purity. Again, following kind of the ancient Judaic concept that these white robes would have been the robes that the priests would have had on as they ministered to God, as they worshiped God, as they brought their sacrifices before God, um, at the end of this long procession of being made white and being made clean. But the indication is this, is that their lives have been transformed and reshaped. Because that's what worship does. I'll give you an example in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 115, I believe it is. I'll read this to you and you can just listen to it. The psalmist says this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name we give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. Then he goes on to begin to kind of wrestle with the reality that he's, he's living amidst a bunch of nations, people, other people groups that, that don't worship Yahweh. And he's wrestling with this because he recognizes uh, there's a lot of brokenness in his world, just like there's a lot of brokenness in our world. And he identifies, he says, why should the nations say, where's their God? And he goes on to say, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Uh, the word that we would use for it is sovereign. God is sovereign, meaning he's totally free to do whatever he wants. 
Then he goes on to say, they're idols. He identifies the fact that these other nations, they, they, they make these little idols and images to bow down to and to worship that represent the gods that they are devoted to. And then he goes on to say, their idols are of silver and gold and the work of human hands. Then he says, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. Hands, they can't feel. They have feet, they can't walk. Uh, Then he goes on to say, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And what the psalmist touches on is a really important, if you want to think of it this way, even a psychological insight into humanity. So one of the reasons why God would say, as I mentioned earlier, don't worship with any other God. Be careful what you devote your energies to, your heart to, your worship to. The word worship just basically comes from the root word worth, to declare worth over something. That's what worship is. It's declaring the worth, the infinite value of worth of something. In this context, is God. To declare infinite worth or value over to anything other than God, uh, the Bible would describe that as idolatry. Again, don't simply reduce idolatry in terms of the worship of these little false statues. Nobody does that today, technically, I don't think, at least in America. Uh, we have other things that we devote our energies to. But the point of the matter is, is that those who devote themselves, their energy to those things, they become like them. So the big reversal is this. We either have a God that created us in his likeness and in, our, in his image, and we worship and devote ourselves to him, or we as human beings, by nature, will create gods in our own, in our own likeness, in our own image, that reflect our desires, our intentions. And the problem with that is it is that a God that we fashion and form in our likeness, even though he might agree with everything about your life, that's one of the convenient reasons why we do this, by the way, because we want a God that doesn't contradict us. It's a heck of a lot easier to worship a God that agrees with everything about my life, right? But at the end of the day, that God can't save you. He's powerless. He doesn't exist. What we need is a God that's outside of us, that's powerful enough to lift us out of our brokenness, but that's loving enough to do so in a way that says, I want to rescue you from the sin that has entangled you and enslaved you without destroying you. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that invites us to worship him, to respond to him. And this is what we see that worship transforms us. Here's a couple of great, great quotes, and I'll wrap it up with some thoughts. James K.A. Smith says this, that worship works from the top down. We don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabilitates our love. That's such a great quote. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabilitates our love. That's where I got the quote from, obviously. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. This is so good. If you want your heart to be retrained, do you see this as the gymnasium where that happens? If you don't, I hope that you would. I hope that maybe this might even be the moment where there's a little bit of a light shining through, breakthrough of reality, that this is not just about doing this boring tradition of going to church on Sunday morning, but that you would look at this as the gymnasium, the place where you do soul workouts, 
right, where your heart begins to be reshaped and reformed and reoriented, where God begins to transform you and your desires, and you become like him. That's exactly what James K.A. Smith is identifying. Next slide. Uh, another great quote from a guy named Greg Beale. He says this in this book called You Are What You Worship. He says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. Worship and our affections, uh, worship and our affections right now are pointers to a future trajectory. Our worship is either aimed at our ruin or our restoration, but in either case, it is aimed. What uh, Greg Beale is basically identifying is that every one of us, we are inescapably connected to a habit that you may not have ever even cognizantly even been aware of. Every one of us in this room are worshipers. You cannot avoid it. We are worshipers. Question is, what is it that you're worshiping? And also the caution is, whatever it is that you're worshiping will carry a trajectory for your life. It will carry you out as he describes to our ruin, to our brokenness. It's like what C.S. Lewis describes in his great book, and he uses these metaphorical pictures about hell. He says, hell begins with a grumpy mood. And it begins to describe how, if, if never unbroken, over a million years, there is no distinguishing between the grumble and the grumpy person. They just bleed into one. The tumor takes over the entirety of the body. You become nothing more than just the cancer. But salvation, God steps in and says, I will remove the tumor the cancerous growth, and I will set you free from that thing which is destroying you. That's what we call grace. That's what we call salvation. That's what we call God's gift. So, and it all traces back to worship. So worship is a big deal. It's a really important thing to consider. So let's wrap this up with some final thoughts. As we conclude, where some warnings and hindrances, because the warning that, again, we don't want to miss is that, like the writer of Psalms identifies, that we can hear the voice of God and yet harden our hearts. Hence the warning, as he says this, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The implication, the assumption, is that this is the default mode, right? When things get tough, when things get painful, when we hear things, that, truths that are inconvenient for our lives, it's way more convenient to just pull away. But be careful, because in that pulling away, something happens to our hearts. The phrase, hardness of heart, um, actually traces back. It's a hyperlink that takes you all the way back to the book of Exodus, where there was a dude in the book of Exodus, a central character in the book of Exodus. He's the bad guy. He hardens his heart, and it doesn't go well for him. His name's Pharaoh. And what the psalmist is inviting us is to say, when you hear God's voice, today if you hear God's voice, be careful that you do not callous yourself, harden your heart, turn away. Um, so hardness of heart and sin become a hindrance. Pride, obviously. There are several things that God says throughout Scripture. He says, I absolutely am repulsed by. Uh, pride is one of them. God says, I hate pride. He says, I give grace to the humble, but I reject the proud. So again, it's one of the reasons why the writer James says, humble yourselves before God and he will lift you up. So the invitation is for us to consider our hearts and ask, is there pride inside of me? Is there that sense where I have an overinflated ego or understanding or a sense of my self-worth is better than others? One of the ways that you can identify that, a barometer to that, is how condescending are you of other people, right? If it's overt, 
if it's maybe even passive-aggressive, that's a good indicator to just bring our hearts back into quiet reflection and say, Jesus, search me, know me. And if you're still having a hard time with that, invite someone who's older than you, not a peer, not a roommate, maybe a spouse or someone that's older than you, and, and just ask them, do you see prideful ways in my heart? I really don't want to be governed by this. I want to be honest before God. I want to be transparent before God. And I know that sin and arrogance and pride will be one of those things that will keep me from entering into this invitation to worship. Hurry and busyness is a third one. Again, self-explanatory that we can be so rushed, so busy, so hurried, so many things on our agenda and our plate that we just simply do not make time to sit before God and worship. Uh, thirdly, ingratitude. Um, you can describe this as disenchantment. Again, this is something that we need to cultivate and consider. Um, next slide, we'll take a look at some things that you can do to, uh, to be a part of this, to help make this more cultivated within your life. Number one, um, just simply show up and be present. I mentioned this a little bit last week. Some of these are a little bit carryover from last week as well because there is some carryover. Um, but again, uh, according to a recent Barna report, um, who is a guy that does polls and whatnot, he uh, was asking people that are followers of Jesus, people that are quote-unquote committed to their church, and they asked them how many times do you actually go to church uh, throughout the month or throughout the year. And according to Barna's report was uh, people go, I don't, you know, somehow he refined it down to 1.2 times a month, which again, if I think if you spread it out over an entire year period, you're looking at basically 15 times per year. So think about that. So out of, uh, you know, 12 months, if all you are doing is going to church maybe 15 times a year, maybe, and that's for the committed people. What, what about those that aren't so committed or have other things going on in your life? Uh, again, never any guilt or shame to identify to this. I, it's just being real. It's, it's got to be real. And I mentioned this uh, past couple weeks. It's, think of it in the same context of working out. Let's say, for example, you're like, I really want to get healthy, start eating better, start getting more physically fit. And so you go out, you're like, I'm going to go to the gym. And three times a week, I'm going to work out. I'm going to find a personal trainer. I'm going to devote myself to this. Because you have the information. You know it's good. You even have the motivation. You're like, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% determined. But you never go to the gym other than maybe 12 times out of the entire year. I don't care how determined you are, motivation, or how much knowledge you have, information, you will not be physically fit. You've, you've gone to the gym. You've worked out once a month. That, that does not translate over to health, by the way. Um, so again, we, we think the same thing with being a follower of Jesus, that if we are going to be a follower of Jesus and really truly embody and live out and understand and press into the work that God's up to, uh, there, there at some point comes a need for us to step in to actually be present. It's really vital. Again, no guilt, no shame, just for something for you to consider and think about. So show up, be present. Number two, cultivate gratitude. Again, this is one of those things I would just suggest is a part of cultivation. We make conscientious decisions to say, I want to have a heart of gratitude. Thirdly, um, you can come 10 minutes early. Again, just another practical thing. Um, just, again, many of us, uh, we, if we just show up progressively, consistently late to things, then, then we will miss important stuff that maybe God has for us. Again, no guilt or shame. I've got to keep saying that. But the point of the matter is, is that, uh, we, we, we get out of it what we put into it. Um, and, and if there is a lackadaisical approach to some of these things, at some point um, we may begin to, to discover that, that my heart does not feel. It might take a long time because we're so encumbered by hurriedness or coming to late uh, because we're, our minds are elsewhere. Again, I think these are just simple practices that we can adopt and consider, at least pray through and try to make it a part of our habit. And then prepare your heart. So when you come, 
or maybe even before you come, spend some time just preparing your heart. And it's going to look different for all of us because some of you got little kids and it's hard to wake up early in the morning without your kids waking up and joining you. And that's not very easy. I get it. But at the end of the day, maybe think about are there some ways in which you can actually spend some time to prepare your heart. Again, it doesn't have to be a long time. It could be five minutes of just cognizantly saying, God, I I really want to meet with you. I want to hear your voice. I want to press into you, step into what you have for me, uh, preparing your heart. Uh, Thirdly, uh, as you come, like, Pray for your leaders. Pray for the pastors. Pray for the people that are leading worship. Pray for those that are making the coffee for you. Pray for those that are greeting you, saying hi. Maybe even pray to maybe even be the answer to your own prayer. Like maybe there's areas that you can step in and serve and be a part of that. Um, And then finally, use your body and your voice as these instruments. Your body and your voice. Um, Again, this may be a learned practice for some of us. Because again, I realize uh, our, our church is filled with people across the spectrum when it comes to those uh, that are following Jesus. We have people that are not even Christians yet, and they're still trying to make sense of who Jesus is. We have people that are brand new Christians, and they're just learning. We have people that have been Christians for a very lengthy amount of time. Vintage saints, right? There you go. Um, But at the end of the day, there's people across the spectrum. But the invitation for you is to think about what does Scripture say about this? How am I applying it? And then how can I enter into it? That's the invitation. Because at the end of the day, this is not just simply about doing practices. It's about becoming like Jesus. So that's the invitation for you to consider, to think about. And what I want to do in closing, I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we're just going to do this. We're going to sing. We're going to respond to God. Before we jump in, I'm going to have my good friend Cameron come on up. He is going to lead us into a time of prayer and reflection and considering. Um, he's got unique abilities to just kind of resummarize things that God lays upon his heart. So I'm going to give the mic to Cameron. Let's welcome Cameron. Should be on. Hello. Got it. Hi, guys. Um, that was beautiful. Thank you, Brian. Um, you know, that whole concept of having a worship problem, um, I think we can all probably resonate with that to some extent. You know, there's things in our lives that we devote our time and attention to religiously and passionately, and we give, our, we give ourselves to those things, and they don't always produce fruit in our lives. And, uh, you know, the worship problem comes from a worship misconception, and I think that was really beautiful to hear a lot of these, um, a lot of these points about what worship is and and some of us have uh, thought worship is going to church, it's singing songs, it's, uh, it's doing Christian things, but, but worship is life, guys. We, how many of you agree with that? Yeah. Worship is breathing, it's uh, loving, it's living, and uh, we, we've got to kind of recalibrate our thinking to see every day and every moment as worship, you know, the, the rocks are crying out, the hills are crying out, and right now we can, just driving across the central coast, you see the creation is singing and celebrating the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And our hearts need to, need to return to our first love. And we, we were talking a bit yesterday with Chris. He was sharing a bit of his story about remembering the day of salvation. And when you first fell in love with Jesus, you, you, you were obsessed with him. We were obsessed with him. We were, we were concentrating on him. And, and we need to renew that. Um, a lot of times, you know, I know that, that I'm in a place where I need to do that. God's been speaking to me a lot about fanning into the flame, uh, that little, that, that, that gift that was put in my heart, that, that passion for Jesus, that relationship. And that's a personal responsibility that we all have. And, and the beautiful thing about it is that we're part of a body. So we're not alone, right? We're all here together. 
with others who love Jesus, and uh, as a family, we can do that together. So um, we're going we're gonna to just enter into worship together right now, but this is an extension of the worship that's happening in our lives, and I want to invite you guys up, um, anyone that wants some prayer, that, that wants help re- refanning that flame, that passion for Jesus, or, or just com- recommitting, God, I want to I wanna see worship as, as life again, and uh, I want to come before you and, and get close to you. So why don't we all stand? And as I pray, don't, don't, be, sh- don't be shy, just come, up, come forward, come, come be with Jesus, come be alone with Jesus, but together. That's what's awesome about corporate worship is, is we get to feed off of the, the passion of our brothers and sisters and, and that the, the God is in our midst together when, we're, when, when we draw near. So Lord, we love you. Um, remind us of, of our first love. Remind us of the gifts that you've put in our heart, the light, the life that, that you have instilled in us, God, your presence that's in our, in our hearts right now. And Lord, we give our lives to you in, in worship, not just singing songs and, and gathering together on a Sunday morning, but, but daily, Lord. Help us to be like the sunflowers that turn to the sun and just focus on your face, Jesus, and focus on what you've done for us and what you're doing for us, present, future. We love you, Lord. Just come, fill us up, fill us up in, our, in, in this place. So I want to invite you guys to just come forward. There'll be some leaders. If any leaders want to come and pray, come on down. We'll engage together.